0: Friends, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 284. And today's podcast comes to you live from a sunny day in the Pacific Northwest. Yes, I'm sitting here in my study right now, uh, and just above the camera that I'm staring into, I see just this beautiful golden light kind of washing over my yard. And I think, how beautiful is that? Until I realize that it's also because there's leaves all over the ground. That's why my ground looks golden. And I got all kinds of leaf blowing to do. So... Instead of being out there blowing my leaves though, I'm in here doing this podcast. Why? Because I love all of you. And thank you for being a listener of the podcast. Um, You know, this is sort of an opportunity for me in this space to do things a little differently than what I do on Sunday mornings. Uh, You know, that's kind of the broadcast net, especially on the application side. I mean, we do some application stuff sometimes. Sometimes I'm just kind of teaching data points. Um, But on the podcast, I can get into the more practical stuff of real life missionary things and to get into some the sticky issues that we all have to kind of contend with and deal with and we have to process out. And hopefully we're doing all of that in the quest to be even more Christ-centered, Christ-like, kingdom-minded, world-changing, not through doing things as the world does them, but doing them different than the world in the spirit and name and, and kind of heart of Jesus. That's the whole essence of why we come and do this podcast. Now, Uh, The podcast is becoming a little trickier for me to do on a regular basis. I know some of you, if you've been listening to kind of what's happening with our church, kind of more we've been talking about this on Sunday mornings or some other kind of outlet venues I've communicated some of the details with. Um, We're in sort of an interesting budget time, right? We're in the middle of a building, which is great. Uh, Love the fact that we're doing this whole project. It's exciting. I was down there today and they're actually doing, I mean, there was a big jump that happened with the building just in the last 24 hours. And so all of that's exciting. But part of what's happening downstream from that is that is we're having some new budgetary constraints and where that is particular to our staffing realities is that there's a potential outside of you know a lot of money being raised in a short amount of time. There's a potential that uh, our staff as a church will all have to go out in, and find kind of regular work and then still do ministry in the church more in the margins of their extra spare time. And so even in my world right now, I am uh, deeply embedded in two separate certifications uh, for a more professional type, uh, I don't know, uh, application out in what I'm going to call the secular workforce, which is funny to me because to be really honest, and here's a little sidebar because you tuned in, um, there is no real secular versus sacred in my thinking. I think it's all just kingdom, right? You're supposed to be like Jesus in whatever environment you find yourself in. Because even as I have seen in recent years, too often in the sacred space, people are not much like Jesus. We've seen a lot of leaders blow out because they're failing to be like that. Uh, But even if you're in the secular world, you're supposed to be like Jesus, right? Everything is a kingdom opportunity. Everything is a chance to display the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Fruit of the Spirit, Definition of Love, to be upside down and backwards in a world world that is backwards and upside down. Right? So that is the joy we get. And so even for me, as I'm working on these two certifications right now, just in case come like roughly December or January that I need to pivot into something full-time outside of the church and keep pastoring at redemption church. Um, working on the stuff, but there's a part of me that has kind of like a, ooh, but this also is opportunity. Not like that I want to spend this much of my life in two different jobs, but I go, I'm going to be out in the real world, so to speak, occupationally for the first time in three decades. Like, And I look at that and I go, to me, there's some parts of that that can be really kind of exciting and opportunity-based because now I get to all the more play out what it means to be an everyday missionary out in the real world, world space. And so, when I think about that, I go, "There is all kinds of coolness there." Now, again, I don't know how sustainable that is for the long haul or whatever else. I don't know. But here's what I do know: God's in control. God knows exactly what He's doing. Um, nothing surprises Him, and and no matter what I may want, no matter what perfect portrait I can paint what matters is I act like Jesus in the midst of those things. And so that I'm not fearful, I'm not worried, I'm not freaking out, I'm not spinning out, I'm not complaining, I'm not a victim of a thing or a circumstance. Like, like this is the ultimate test. Are you going to be a real everyday missionary when life is hard or is it only going to be when life is easy, right? Like, what are you going to decide on there? And maybe that then kind of takes me into the topic of the day in a different kind of way. Not that the topic is exactly related, but it reminded me kind of this of this idea of, yeah, What we are called to do, like the easy stuff is morality. The easy stuff is being a good person or loving your family or whatever. Those are like the easy things. But I think we're called to harder things. And that's the real test, right? Because One of the things I believe in pretty heavily is this idea that life is better with Jesus. And that's the mission statement of our church. And some people hear this and I have to kind of ward off critique sometimes where they're like, oh, well, come on. Life is better with a 401k and life is better with a nice car. And is this just kind of trivial? And I think it misses the point of what is being communicated in the statement. The full statement is helping people believe life is better with Jesus. And in that, what that's trying to say is, we i want i want to help you believe that doing it his way is better for you and for those around you and yet his way is very very hard right so when we say life is better with jesus we're saying life is better when you decide to submit to his radical standard for living that sermon on the mount sermon on the plain stuff when you embrace that and do that even though you may not want to even though it's counterintuitive to you even though against your goes against sometimes your own best um uh, assurance for a comfortable future. Like to do it Jesus' way almost ensures that you may not have a comfortable future because his way is all about the discomfort of living kingdom-minded in a world that wants to kind of smother that out, right? And and so, again, for me, when I think about the statement, when I think about moving forward in life, when I think about all that we do and about being an everyday missionary, it is really about saying, I want to do that hard, difficult thing of being like Jesus when it would be easier to be like myself or be like my world or put certain uh, ideologies above the ideology of Jesus, which is always a temptation. I think even for Christians, that's a huge temptation. We start to put um, kind of wanting monetary stability or political certainty or military kind of prowess or what we we can kind of elevate a lot of other things and we're not always elevating the counterintuitive Uh, very foreign way that Jesus wants to do stuff in the world, right? And so that's the heart of the podcast. That's the heart of what we want to do. I think that's the heart of what makes Christianity truly unique. There's a lot of not unique Christianity in the world. I think there's a lot of just worldly stuff in the name of Christ, but unique Christianity is going to just grind the gears of the world around us and it's going to do stuff different. And it's going to do the hard things, not just the easy things, the truly Jesus-centric things, not just the religious or moral or theological things, but the toughest stuff of all. And maybe that kind of takes me in to the theme of the day. And I don't know if I have a good title for this. I want to be clear uh, how this all came up. It was actually kind of a twofold thing. So on uh, Monday night, we had a meeting as a board and we were talking about a number of things and there was something I shared at the end of that meeting that was just kind of an aha moment a little bit for me. Like, oh, that's an interesting thing I've not considered until I actually said it. And then I kind of found myself spinning on it a little bit more. And then I reached out to my man, Dave Clark. I am saying it by name. I got my good friend, Dave Clark, listens over in Spokane. We are brothers of another mother kind of thing. You know, it's like, he's he's my doppelganger. We joke about that all the time um, and uh, love him. And so we were texting and I'm like, dude, how about he do like listener faves? What What's something I can talk about? And he kind of pitched this idea and I'm like, oh man, this is something I was just kind of talking about a little bit the other day anyway. So I'm going to bundle all of this together and kind of do a theme. And so I'm not exactly sure what this will be titled by the time you see it, but kind of a clunky, lame way of saying it for the podcast right now is to say, um, capital punishment is alive and well in the new Testament. How about that, right? So, um, okay, so let me go back for a minute, right? So, um, a lot of us know that in the Old Testament, there was some severe penalty for a lot of different stuff. And the most severe forms were your execution, whether it be by burning or by stoning, you died for doing that stuff, right? Pretty brutal stuff by any human standard, but that's the way it was done, right? So those were the really severe offenses. But then there was also kind of these corporal offenses. And depending on the nature of the corporal offense, it may be something where it's as low hanging as you ate a bat, which is gross, but you ate a bat and you need to go through a process of purification all the way to you just somehow were a part of consciously, consciously, um, harming or doing something to a neighbor's goods or, you know, cattle or whatever it was. And from that, um, they, you know, lost out on some income and therefore you had to compensate them plus extra kind of penalty, you know, kind of monetary things to really make things right. And so you have capital offenses, which are really bad stuff and corporal offenses, which kind of range to lesser stuff. Right now with that, I kind of give you that framework a little bit because again, it gives us the idea that in that structure, it seems to communicate to us the higher, the, the, um, the outcome or the most more severe the outcome it must equal the more severe the offense and so if you murder somebody you are stoned to death uh, which is very different than again you accidentally hurt your neighbor's cow and you just need to make restitution right so that gives us a sense of kind of the moral strata of worst offenses to some of the more benign kinds of things right but then we make it to the new testament and everybody says whew, I'm so glad we got out of the carnage of that. Now I don't have to kill an adulterer. I don't have to, you know, kill somebody that gathered wood on Saturday. Glad to be out of it. That's why I tend to say that the New Testament lowers the standard in some ways. I know a lot of people get frustrated at that and they're like, no, Jesus ups the standard because he deals with the heart. And I'm like, right. But what he removes from the standard is you don't have to kill your neighbor for adultery. So in some ways, the, the, penalty issue in this world kind of drops. There is a new kind of mercy that takes place as we arrive into the New Testament, which is why then in the New Testament space, you don't see like the New Testament apostles, um, doling out, executions within the church space. There's a the worst thing that can happen is like excommunication, right? You're kicked out of the church, but ain't nobody dead by the end of the day kind of thing, right? So in that sense, the New Testament doesn't have the same rigidity of doling out Uh, you know, the death penalty, uh, except, except, this goes to the title now, there are two instances where the death penalty is still alive and well, not executed by people, but executed by God, which then should tell us something about how God sees these two different areas of offense. And then I'll see if I can spin this into what it means to be an everyday missionary for us today. So the first is in the book of Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. I think a lot of us that have been floating around in the church for a while know the story But basically, there's a couple uh, and a bunch of people, like what you see in the book of Acts early on is that the church, man, they rallied together. There is no sense of individualism. This is a collective whole. This is a community of faith. And it's a community of faith that's literally selling their stuff taking the proceeds and bringing it together in oneness. I mean, it's communal almost in its orientation in every way. So it's spiritual, it's monetary, you know, it's social. They are two together. They are saying, you know what, this world does not matter. It's the kingdom and the kingdom to come this is what matters. And so they're just selling off everything, bringing it all together and dispersing it as there's need. So, you know, some people would say it's kind of socialism. And I'd say kind of in the book of Acts, it has a socialistic type feel, a commune type feel. Well, you get in chapter five and there's this couple and they're like, we sold our stuff too. We sold our property and we gave a hundred percent of the proceeds to the church. Now, in reality, they did not give the full amount that they claimed to have given, right? So they sold off some stuff. They've kept some for themselves and they've given some to the church, but they've claimed to give it all. So I want to be just clear for a minute so I don't overload the assumption here the problem isn't so much that they only gave some. The problem is that they claim to have given all when they only gave some. So this isn't like you have to give up everything if you want to be in the church in Acts chapter five. No, it's the fact that they wanted some kind of... um, I don't want to say notoriety, but they wanted to be seen as though they were super generous, like everybody else was being, but they really weren't and they kept some back and so they lie. They lie to the community of faith. They lie to God. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And from that, they get called out, right? You claim to have done X. You did Y. And from this, you've lied to us. You've lied to God. And then the consequence of that is they die, right? So they die on the spot, the husband at one point, the wife at another point, all because there was this level of greed and in their greed, there was this deception about it. And from that, there is this consequence. And so it is in essence, a death penalty for that offense of kind of this deceptiveness attached to greediness in their world where they were not, uh wanting to or willing to to give to kind of to the local church and to God what they were claiming they were going to do. Again, had they claimed a different number, we're going to give half or a quarter and they give half or a quarter, they're still alive by the end of the day, right? So the problem isn't the amount that they did, but it was the claims that they made and the heart that they had in relationship with it. So that's the first kind of capital uh, or corporal or capital offense rather in the New Testament. The second one is it is found in First Corinthians chapter eleven, and there we see that Paul is dealing with divisions in the church, and there is a ton of division in the Corinthian assembly, right? So they're divided, uh, rich and poor, slave and free. They're divided, male and female. They're divided about who has what gifts. They're divided over who follows which apostle. Uh, you name it, they're fighting about it. Like it, it's so America. Like it's <laughs> honestly, we could read like name First Corinthians, we could call it Paul's first letter to the Americans, right? Because the same stuff that's there is here in our world. We find ways to divide up over everything. And so in chapter 11, Paul talks about communion. And the essence of communion is to say, we are all one in Christ, no matter where we are coming from in this whole kind of menagerie of people, personalities, backgrounds, circumstances, challenges, temptations, you name it. We are all one in Christ. Jesus gave himself on the cross so that we would be one. This is his prayer at the end of his ministry. God, make them one just as you and I are one. I mean, this is his driver, right? I don't want disunity. I want unity. Fight for unity as much as you can because that shows the world how you are different and unique and distinct. You love each other as I have loved you. When you fail to do that, the world's going to look and say, you guys are just dysfunctional. You're not a family. You're You're just a menagerie craziness, right? And so there's this big thrust there. Man, make sure you show your unity. Now in there, there's this weird little thing where Paul says, you know what? In the church, there's going to be division. There almost needs to be a division to show that some people are more approved by God than others, which I'm always like, I don't know what to do with that, right? Except to say that I think that there's a lot of people who think they're the most approved that probably are not going to be all that approved. And the ones that everybody thinks are not approved are going to be the most approved of God. You know, like, honestly, it's just like, I think we're going to be surprised in the end kind of who he says good and faithful servant to and who he says, why were you such a thug, man? So that's just a different thing for a different day or whatever else. But more importantly to our text in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, here's the thing though, you guys are coming together, but you're not... In unity. You're not trying to be reconciled to one another. You're not putting each other above yourself. You're putting yourself before your others. You're thinking yourself better than you do of others. You have this personality within you that's kind of dividing up, sizing up, being critical of one another. And from that, he says, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, which is why he says some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you have died because of this. In other words, the second capital offense of the New Testament is a disunity of the Christian body where people are taking communion when they're not in union, and that is, by way of extension, punishable by death. In the christian assembly again not that human beings are doing this executing of judgment it seems again it's either going to be the father or the son or the holy spirit that is doing that in the lives of these people so both in acts chapter 5 and first corinthians chapter 11 we see the two instances of capital punishment in the christian context right so we're not talking about unbelievers here. Capital punishment in the context of the Christian community of faith. And what are the reasons? One is disunity and the other is a greed that makes you deceptive in the midst of your greed. And so my little realization this week in the, in the strata of um, the worse the offense, the higher the, the penalty of the offense. And like and it's interesting to me because, again, like the woman caught in adultery with Jesus, um, he just says, hey, I don't condemn you like go and sin no more. We're your condemners. I just, and, and it's interesting because, you know, she never actually even repents in the story. Like she never says, Jesus, I was an adulteress, please forgive me. And he says, Hey, I don't, condemn you, go and sin no more. The story is a really interesting story to me for that. Not that there wasn't grief on her part or somehow repentance in there, but the story never reveals it. And where the law was clear, she should die. Jesus should have grabbed a rock and killed her on the spot. Jesus actually just goes, you know what the law says? I mean, this is what he's doing. We all know what the law says, what to do with her, because you guys all got rocks in hand ready to go, right? But he then upends everything. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to condemn her. I'm actually gonna send her off with new hope, and i want to tell her, hey, go and sin no more, not because it's like this moral thing hanging over her head, but because you know what? That is not gonna be fulfilling. That is not gonna be life-enriching. That's not gonna be God-glorifying. That's not gonna be the thing that fills up what you most need. Go and sin no more is not just a wagging the finger. It is a liberation. It is a freedom-giving thing, right? But there for something that the Old Testament was so clear on, death for this, she doesn't die, right? or so many other things and so many other people that we come in contact in the New Testament that had all sorts of problems. I mean, even in Corinth, right? There was some sexual problems in chapters five and six. There was marital problems in chapter seven. There was stuff about meat sacrificed to idols in chapters eight and nine and 10. But you know what elevates to, now some of you have died because of this, this disunity among Christians. That's the thing. All that other stuff, all the sexual morality, all of the idolatry, all of that stuff, what elevates disunity in the Christian community, right? And, and so I just was thinking about how interesting it is that we do not elevate those. In fact, we even sometimes see disunity as acceptable, or we turn a blind eye to our disunity, or we um, actually even have entire, um, I don't know, I'd almost call them like outlets of ministry that wants to generate disunity among Christians. I mean, some of the most popular personalities in evangelicalism today like their LinkedIn page would say, I'm a specialist in creating disunity and distrust and dysfunction among other brothers and sisters in Christ because I'm busy judging them all, talking about how they're wrong here and wrong there. And, and it's just a mess. And so all the more, as I think about this, I go, what is the toughest stuff to do in the Christian life, especially as American evangelical Christians? I think the toughest stuff is to It's hard to seek true unity, even in our differences and diversity. It's hard to seek true unity, especially when you've been hurt or you are frustrated by others in your tradition. Uh, It's hard to seek unity when um, you know you you might look at the landscape. and think that you've got it more figured out than others uh, or they're more adrift than you or whatever else. It's just hard to seek that unity, but it seems that unity is one of the most central features of what makes us unique as followers of Christ, right? And that's what he seeks of us. We should say unity at, at almost all costs. I understand that there is a need at times for division. There is a need at times in the midst of having um, discernment to go, you know, this is where we need to divide. But even in that, it should be in generosity. It should be in grace. Like, I love you and you love me. This isn't going to work us staying together in this context because we have so much disagreement on the saying, but I'm going to bless you as you go. I'm going to bless as uh, I go, whatever it might be. And even there, there's still the spirit of saying, hey, we're all going to share heaven together one day and that is what we're rallied around. You know what I mean? And then just trying to be generous in that space as we do it. I think the other thing is I thought about in Acts 5 and I go, "What? that's the other big offense. I think that's a good warning for the evangelical community. And I think the the overall organized Christian religion, I think it's been oftentimes accused of greed and then not believing it's really greedy, like self-deceiving in relationship to its greed, being more monetarily driven than really kingdom driven, being driven by the need to protect systems and cultures and mechanisms more than saying, you know, we're just gonna let Jesus be first in what we do and we're gonna not worry about money. We're gonna trust him. I mean, this is a great test even for us as a church right now where again, when you have a monetary kind of challenge, it's easy to then kind of get spun up like worrying about money, which I think is what Jesus gets at in Matthew 6. Like, don't worry about that stuff. You're letting money be your God if you worry about that. I think what Ananias and Sapphira did is they fell victim to the God of money over the God who is God. And again, had they made different agreements or arrangements, it would have been fine, but it reveals something about their heart, which is a heart for all of us, which is when this is more about good economies, when this is more about financial prosperity, when this is all about trying to secure a monetary future, uh, if this is all about saying money is really the key driver in everything and that's what we need to fight for at all costs. Then we sacrifice the very thing that Jesus warns us about, which is, man, you're going to make money. Your God's going to fail you in the end, and it's going to estrange you from God in the process. And so as I thought about just these two things, it just kind of struck me this week, like, oh yeah, it's a really good reminder. It's a really good reminder that of all of the sins that we can have, and they are legion, like we all are going to struggle, right? But the ones that the New Testament puts on high alert with blinking lights are related to money and greed And deception in that, like we're just self-deceived about our greed and disunity. So deception on greed and disunity are two giant things that not only do we need to look out for our own lives, but we need to, man, encouragingly uh, warn one another about in all of our lives, right? to not just say hey this is acceptable policy or this is just the way things are done or to pretend like this isn't really our issue or even to elevate some of these things i mean i think of like prosperity gospel preachers like they're the i go like that's kind of a big deal right there right so so all the way around i look at these things and go man just a good reminder for us that this is in part how we need to be different in our world this is how we're to be everyday missionaries we need to push back against the pressure of disunity we need to push back against the pressure of monetary faith like we have faith in the monetary systems of our world. And that we don't self-deceive ourselves and say, I don't really struggle with greed. I don't struggle with trusting money. I don't struggle with having a financial God. Like, no, we all, especially as Americans, like that was the thing I said the other night in our board meeting. I'm like, I feel like all Americans are going to hell, man. (laughs) And I said that flippantly. I confess that. But it's just like... I, 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 none of us, none of us think we're greedy. None of us think we have a love affair with money, but how would we fully know? It's like a fish doesn't know it's wet. And I go, we live in this prosperous thing where the free market is a powerful driver and capitalism is a powerful driver. And I wouldn't know if we would know how to self regulate or be aware unless we were really leaning into the Holy Spirit to say, help me to know if this is the space I'm in, because I wouldn't know otherwise apart from your spirit. And so just again, for me, just kind of this thing like, oh, these are maybe really too high end topics in the New Testament that we should care about. And we can't just care about all the other things though. Those are important, but we need to also just be self-aware like, hey, God wants unity. God wants fidelity. How can I be both those things? Because the more we focus on that, the more we're trying to conquer these things within us that run contrary to that, the more it just puts us in alignment with Christ, with his heart and his tone and his mindset toward the world. And then the more we do that and we function like that, well, then you know the answer to this and the ending of every podcast, man, we will be more effective everyday missionaries.